If you would please turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 24. 1 Samuel chapter 24 is where I'd like to direct your attention. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the one in the pews ahead of you. It's on page 292 in the pew Bibles, 1 Samuel 24 is. And uh, we're going to read this chapter in a few moments. I'd like you to have your Bibles open and uh, ready when we come to that. Uh, This morning I want to talk to you about how to deal with a bully. Uh, This is a subject that everyone has at least a little bit of experience with. And our culture, we're talking about bullies more and more and more. Uh, There was a 2006 study, I know it's a little bit old, but in a 2006 study, 79% of 12 to 18-year-olds said that they had been bullied at school. Uh, 28%, there was some overlap there, of those same students said that they were bullied outside of school. And now 2006 uh, was the earliest days of social media. And if you want to talk about bullying and the subject of girls, social media is the topic to consider. Uh, Girls are twice as likely to bully using social media uh, than boys are. The good news about bullying is that when you become an adult, you have more freedom to decide Uh, where you work and live and how you spend your free time, it's a little bit easier to avoid bullies. They're not in your bus, on your bus, they're not in your class. You don't have to walk by their house on the way home from school. That's good. The bad news is, though, that when you become an adult, the bullies that you do encounter, they may be rarer, they're they're harder to avoid. This is uh, actually the type of bully that I want to talk to you uh, this morning the bully you can escape? What if you work for a bully or married a bully or have a bully in your, uh, uh, for a parent or as a sibling? You can't get away from them. And what is worse, there are biblical commands about how you're supposed to treat those people. If your wife is a bully, what does loving her, like the Bible says you're supposed to love her, what does that look like? Or... Um, how do you honor a father or a mother who is bullying you? There's, there's no escape clauses in those passages of Scripture that talk about honoring your parents. There, there is this tension, isn't there, between what the Bible says, it's pretty clearly and easily, to, it's not hard to understand, and your own experience, that, that space in between is filled with all kinds of questions and Concerns and it can be filled with all kinds of rationalization as to why the commands don't apply to you. And that can be a very murky, murky area to live, this space between what the Bible says and your own experience. The reason that um, we're talking about this is because of this passage of Scripture that we come to this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It's the first of two chapters in the book of Samuel where we see our intrepid hero, David, trying to respond by faith to the murderous rage of Saul. Uh, We've seen this trouble before. We understand exactly what's going on. King Saul is the the anointed king of Israel. He has persistently disobeyed God, and because of that, he has lost his kingdom. Well, he's going to lose his kingdom, and he's going to lose his dynasty. And Samuel, the prophet, God sent Samuel the prophet to anoint David as the new king. So I understand exactly why Saul is angry in this book. None of what he does is excusable, though. 
I want to take a broad look this morning at bullying relationships. There are dozens of particularities and circumstances that you need to talk to someone about, but I want to focus on what the Bible seems to argue is the main thing, namely, what role does God himself play in your mind as you think about how you deal with bullies? These chapters that we have, 24 and 26, we're going to look at both of them, uh, they serve multiple purposes. On the one hand, there is a contrast here between Saul and David. It continues that. We have been seeing this all the way through the book. Um, David, God plays a very large role in his mind. God looms large in, in what David does and what he says. But Saul, Saul's world is about as big as the size of his ego. Everybody lives in Saul's world, and there's rebels in Saul's world that he needs to take care of. Contrast, that's what we see here. On the other hand, these books also show us that David, as as we read this story, David is not the rebel that Saul thinks he is. The dynasty changes in this book. This is kind of important for the history of Israel and how it develops. David is not... Uh, uh, he doesn't hate Saul. He's not plotting against Saul. In fact, David is his most loyal servant. David is king not because he took Saul down, but because God put him on the throne. We see that here in this, this chapter, this continue to unfold, this theme. For our purposes today, I want to look at this story to figure out how God shepherds his people in the midst of bullying, oppression, injustice. There's two episodes, as I said, and they're remarkably similar. Some scholars, on the basis of the similarities between what happens in chapter 24 and what happens in chapter 26, say it's the same event that's just told twice. I don't think that's true. There's too many differences. And then uh, there's 25 in the middle of them, chapter 25. We're going to look at that next week. I think that what happens in chapter 25 changes how David responds in chapter 26. I'll show that to you, but these are not the same. That's enough generalities. Here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read both of these chapters. We're going to read parts of 24 and then parts of 26. And what I want to do is I want to compare and contrast them. How are they similar and how are they different? And then when we do that, after we do that, based on that, I want to give you some guidelines for dealing with a bully by faith. All right, let's start reading. We're going to start reading First Samuel chapter 24. We're going to read the first seven verses as we start here. After Saul, the text says, returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. It's a wonderful place name, isn't it? The crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. All right, now flip over to chapter 26. Let's see how this scene begins. Chapter 26, verse 1 says, The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, 
Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakilah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Now here's the first similarity we find in these, in these chapters. In both passages, someone comes and reports to Saul about where David is. Uh, we don't know who did it in chapter 24, but in chapter 26, it's the Ziphites. The Ziphites have done this before to David. What is wrong with these people? I don't know, uh, but this is what happens. And then the second similarity here has to do with the troops. Did you notice that? 3,000 men in both cases. Saul calls out the army to go chase after David. He does this while the Philistines are always ready to attack on, on his border. That's interesting. This is often true about bullies. Saul is, is busy attacking David when he's got his own problems that he has to deal with, which is usually the way things are with bullies. They may come after you instead of dealing with the real problems, the real problems that they have, because you, in their mind, are easier to deal with than their real problems. Well, um, let's keep reading. We're going to go back to chapter 24, and we're going to start back in verse 8. All right? So verse 8 of chapter 24. Remember, Saul went into the cave, and David was there, and, well, let's keep... Uh, well, actually, do I want to keep reading? Hmm, what do I want to do? Yes, no, I don't. I'm not sure why I want to do that. Oh, no, I want to read in chapter 26. That's what I want to do. It's the problem. Two passages of Scripture. Let's start reading verse 3 of chapter 26. There we are. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakilah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he, went, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had laid down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech the Hittite and Abishai, the son of Zeruah, uh, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I'll go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, Now how would you talk if you were surrounded by 3,000 enemy soldiers sleeping? Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Or his time. He's still going on and on, isn't he? Woo. The Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head, and let's go. Now the key difference here between chapters 24 and chapter 26 is how David and Saul met one another. In chapter 24, Saul has to go to the bathroom. Where else does a king go to the bathroom but in a cave? And it's the exact cave where David is hiding with his 600 troops. This is a dangerous time for both of them. It's dangerous for David because he's trapped in this cave, and it's dangerous for Saul because he's quite vulnerable. It's also a little funny, isn't it? I mean, how would you film this scene, right? Saul, uh, David and his troops are in the cave and they're, they're hiding there. They can, hear, they can hear the army outside. Shh, someone comes in. It's Saul. 
He's walking in, and here they all are hiding. And then Saul drops his drawers. <laughs> you know? Ugh. It's not pleasant that you're fi- to find out that you're hiding in someone's bathroom, right? Now, in chapter 26, David's not hiding. In fact, David is on the prowl, isn't he? He, he has spies to tell him where Saul is, and he sneaks into the middle of the camp. That's dangerous, too. What are the chances that 3,000 men encamped overnight and one place out in the wilderness are all going to be asleep, sound asleep at the same time? I remember when I was in high school, we went on a, a, a father-son retreat. It was an overnight camping trip. And uh, I don't know, from the hours of 10 p.m. to 7 a.m., at which time somebody might be sleeping, I guarantee there were 40 men of us, 40 of us, and there, there was somebody awake that entire time. We had farmers, they were up at four, and there were night owls, they were up till 12. Someone was awake all the time, right? What are the chances that 3,000 soldiers out in the field are going to be all sleeping? This is dangerous, except, well, the text tells us that God had kept them asleep. Let's see. Um, Verse 12, David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. God's at work protecting his anointed king. Did you notice in this passage a similarity between how the men advised David to treat Saul? Did you notice that similarity too? So in chapter 24, verse, uh, let's see, verse 4, they said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. That verse is hard to find in the Bible. Well, not verse 4. That's right here. But the quote the day the Lord spoke of. We're not sure when God said this. I wonder if his men made this up or if they are interpreting here a little bit what what God has said. Either way, his men want David to kill Saul. In chapter 26, the person who wants David, uh, Saul dead, is Abishai. Now, Abishai is an important character in the rest of Samuel. He'll show up a lot. He is identified by his mother's name in verse 6. So, chapter 26, verse 6, it says, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah. That's she, that's his mother, that is David's sister. So, Abishai is David's nephew. And Abishai has two brothers, Joab and Asahel. We're going to read about all of them. They're kind of three nephews in the story, they're the Huey, Louie, and Dewey of the Old Testament, all right? They, are, they cause an immense amount of trouble for David. They're competent warriors, but they're bloodthirsty, and they're vengeful, and they're violent. Well, you can see that. Abishai, uh, he volunteers to go to kill Saul. Let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. That phrase, pin him to the ground should remind you of the time that Saul picked up that same spear and wanted to pin David to the wall. Same phrase. Same phrase. Now, here's a difference, a crucial difference in this passage uh, between uh, 24 and 26. The crucial difference is what David did. What David did. In chapter 26, which we just read, he took the spear and the water jug and, and ran away. In chapter uh, 24, what does he do? He goes up and he cuts his robe. Verse uh, 4 of chapter 24 says that. Verse 5 says, 
After he did that, he was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. Now, why is David conscience-stricken over this? It's not because this is a designer robe or Saul's favorite robe. Why does he feel guilty about this? David apparently views cutting the robe as a sign of disrespect. And actually, it makes us think of all kinds of things in the book of Samuel. The robe here is the symbol of Saul's right to reign. He has royal robes. Remember earlier when Jonathan first met David after David killed Goliath? Jonathan, What did Jonathan do? Jonathan took off his royal robes and gave them to David. It was a symbol that David was a royal person. He was worthy of being a member of the royal family. And then there's that scene with Samuel the prophet and Saul. It happened so long ago. Uh, uh, Samuel, uh, Saul, rather, had disobeyed God in, in killing the Amalekites. And Saul the prophet, Samuel the prophet said to him, You have disobeyed God. The kingdom is going to be taken from you. And Samuel turned away from Saul. And Saul reached out and grabbed his robe and ripped Saul the prophet's robe. And, and, and Samuel the prophet's robe. And Samuel said to Saul, <laughs> Samuel said to Saul, The kingdom is going to be ripped from you just like you have torn this robe. And, and David here is cutting this robe. One commentator suggested that cutting someone's robe was a symbol of contempt, the symbol of distrust, rejection. Laying on hold of someone's robe is a symbol of loyalty and trust and dependence. Cutting it is a sign of disrespect. Actually, if that's true, it makes me think of that dear woman in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. It's a wonderful story. This woman has this very serious affliction. The Bible tells us that she thinks to herself, if I can just reach up and grab the hem of Jesus' robe, I'll be healed. I know it. That story, I, I confess to you, that story has always conf- uh, struck me as, um, as somewhat superstitious. You know, is Jesus a rabbit's foot and I just need to touch his robe and I'll be healed? Well, maybe not. Maybe if this symbolism of the robe is, is still true in the New Testament, this is more a sign of her faith than than, than the, the text indicates at face value. Laying hold of him. Now David's guilt, the reason that David is conscience-stricken is because of how he views Saul. Actually, more importantly, how he views God. He says this repeatedly over and over again. Look at chapter 24, verse 8. Uh, not verse 8, verse 6. Verse 6 of chapter 24. The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. Now flip over to chapter 26. He says something similar. Verse 9, David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, the Lord himself will strike him. Verse 11, But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. This is central to the passage. David's view of God himself and God's work in this person's life, he's the anointed of the Lord, keeps him from attacking Saul, which is a vastly different uh, attitude than Saul has towards the Lord's anointed. Right? Remember in chapter 22? Saul leads his army into Nob and there's all these priests, those anointed priests of the Lord, and Saul without thought orders that they be executed. 
David, in respect for God, is not going to touch Saul. Saul has no such respect for God and kills those priests and is trying to kill David, who is also the anointed of the Lord. Now, let's talk about what happens next here in both stories. In in chapter 24, verse 8, we have some speeches, both stories and with speeches. And this is the longest speech that David has ever made in the book of Samuel. It's personal defense. It's almost poetry. Um, It's almost psalm-like. And when he's done, Saul can uh, barely croak out a response. He stumbles a little bit. Verse 8 says, Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king! When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Do you see any disloyalty on David's part to Saul? None. That's all Saul can see, though. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Now, David is sly. This is a phrase, from evil doers come evil deeds. Verse 14 Against whom has the king of Israel come? Uh, He repeats that word come in the proverb and in what he's saying to Saul, kind of implying, Saul, you're doing me wrong. You're an evildoer here. You're coming. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. You'll have to decide. There's an issue here. Think about this. I'm not sure what I think about this. So what's David doing in 14 and 15? Is he being self-deprecating or is he threatening? Think about this. Maybe he's doing both. Who are you pursuing, Saul? A dead dog? A flea? Now, in Israelite customs, uh, Israeli culture, a dog was about the lowest of the low, with apologies to echo this morning, I'm so sorry, but the dog was about the lowest of the low in the society, and a dead dog was even worse. I'm a dead dog, why are you coming out after me? I'm a dead dog, I don't care. I'm not even a dead dog, I'm a flea on the body of a dead dog. Why are you bothering with me, Saul? Perhaps that's what he's saying. Or is he saying, Saul... Who do you think you're coming after? A dead dog? A flea? God will judge. God will vindicate. Which one is it? Is he being self-deprecating or is he threatening? Well, maybe a little bit of both. Verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? 
May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Finally, finally here, Saul admits David's going to be king. Finally. Uh, God has said it, Samuel has said it, Jonathan has said it, now finally Saul says, David, you're going to be king. Now, let's look at the speeches in chapter 26. They're not quite as elegant, um, but they're still helpful here. Let's see, verse 13 of chapter 26, David's speech. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on the top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you who calls to the king? Are you waking us up? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. Yeah, his name was Abishai. (laughs) What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? Now, David's a little bit more confident here, isn't he? He He's picking on Abner. I think what he's doing is he is saying to Abner, he's making the point, I was a more faithful soldier to Saul than you are, Abner. I would not have let this happen. If you let somebody come into the, the, the camp, I wouldn't have done that. Saul has no more loyal a follower than me, David. Verse 17, Saul recognized David's voice and says, Is that your voice, David, my son? Same thing. Saul's not very creative. David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord, the king, listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If however people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today for my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, Go serve other gods. And we'll stop here for just a minute. David can't travel in Israel safely. And, the re- uh, and he can't travel in Israel safely, therefore he can't go to worship at the tabernacle. And because he can't worship at the tabernacle, he is cut off from God, because you had to worship at the tabernacle. And the people who are saying to him, go somewhere else, are encouraging him to go worship at some other temple, worship some other God. That's what he's talking about here. Verse 20. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea. There it is again as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. The second time he says this. First time was back in chapter 15 with the Amalekites. I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Now, if you were David, would you take Saul's apology and would you go back with him? No. Here's the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. That spear causes so much trouble in the Bible, doesn't it? It's a spear that Saul holds when he sits on his throne. It's a spear that he tried to throw at David twice and Jonathan once. It's the spear in a few chapters that he's going to use to attempt suicide. 
Verse 23. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. Those are the last words that Saul says to David. Good comfort for David. So David went on his way and Saul returned home. So here's the story. Here are... um, these two stories, they're parallel in many ways, and they, they go together. Um, how, how do these stories apply? That's what I'm interested in. Three guidelines I want to share with you for how to deal with a bully, especially a bully you can't escape. All right, here's number one. Your respect for a bully reflects your reverence for God. Your respect for a bully is not based on who they are or what they do or their performances, but you have you respect them out of recognition of God at work and who God is, your reverence for God. Think about the role of God that God plays in David's estimation of Saul. God is clearly the most important person in David's life. This is not merely a horizontal battle. David does not merely see Saul in his situation here. He is thinking about God himself. He can think about Saul without thinking about God himself. How would your life be different if you viewed every relationship you have this way? If you thought about every relationship that you have with God in mind, that he has a controlling interest, that, that, that the relationships you have with, with antagonists, are not just a tug of war between you and somebody else, but but there is a triangle in which God is involved in this and he has a controlling influence in what you say and what you do. How how would your interaction with them be different? Specifically, uh, David treats Saul here the way he does because he knows that that God has put Saul into this position. Actually, the New Testament follows this logic quite closely. Look at Romans 13, 1 and 2. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Doesn't that sound like what David is saying and how he's living? He's living out Romans 13, 1 and 2. He's the Lord's anointed. How about 1 Peter 2.13? We read this a little bit. Christina did a few minutes ago. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Submit to them for the Lord's sake with view towards your reverence for God. When Paul writes to wives and he writes to children in Ephesians 5 and 6, he uses these phrases as as unto the Lord or as to the Lord or in the Lord. This does not mean that the person in authority is always right or is always just, but the Bible calls us to respect them not for their sake chiefly, but for the sake of the God who put them there. We we treat them with this view on, on God himself. Now, I'm sad to say that you probably already know how to do this. Um, I know I do in a slightly different way. It's more shameful, actually. Uh, Think about this with me. Do you speak to your children or your spouse uh, differently at home as opposed to when you're in the grocery store? 
Or do you speak to them differently in the car on the way to church than you do when you're in the foyer? Do you speak to your your spouse or your kids differently in those circumstances? Um, I do. You already know how to modify your behavior to impress the cashier at Walmart. Will you not modify your behavior because you are in the presence of God himself? Mm. Align your relationships with the reality of the presence of holy God. Now, here's guideline number two. Let's move on here. Uh, Number two, revenge is the work of fools. Revenge is the work of fools. It's a lesson we're going to learn more clearly in chapter 25. We're going to see that next week, Lord willing. David learns something in chapter 5, which is why he acts differently, I think, in chapter 26. David refuses to raise a hand against Saul, which is very different from how Saul treats him. Saul says in chapter 26, I am a fool. Again, there's echoes of this in the New Testament about revenge. Romans 12, 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, that actually leads us to guideline number three. Guideline number three, God will ensure justice. Remember that God will ensure justice. That's a huge theme in David's interaction with Saul. Did you notice that? It takes a lot of space. Chapter 24, verse 12, it says, May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And then in chapter 26, he says, as sure, verse 10, As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. That word, we're going to see that again next week. This is how Nabal, the fool, dies in chapter 25. God struck him. God may strike Saul like that too. Or his time will come. He'll die of old age. And he'll die or he will go into battle and perish, but the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. This is God's work. This is the call to all of God's oppressed people. We entrust ourselves to God because he is just. Now, that entrusting ourselves to him may include a couple of different elements. It may include, first of all, defending yourself. It may include defending yourself. David is not shy here in this passage about protesting his innocence. There are likely moments at home or at work in which you must do the same. David is respectful. He gives Saul a lot of breathing room, doesn't he, in his speeches? He he says to Saul, Now I know that there's people influencing you and giving you these crazy ideas about me. Saul's capable of creating the crazy ideas all by himself. But but David is, is giving him a lot of room. He doesn't act out of revenge. Oh, You'll need help with that, won't you? Isn't it hard to tell the difference sometimes between defending yourself and revenge? That's really hard. Uh, There are a host of unique situations that that I'm touching on here. I recognize this. One of the things that's actually not in this passage, and I'll tell you why I think it is that, that, that the Bible certainly would allow for, is that part of defending yourself is the right of appeal. The right of appeal. 
Saul is the highest court in the land. So to whom does David appeal? He appeals to God because he has nowhere else to go. That's probably not the case in your situation. Sometimes if you're being bullied, you have an appeal to your boss's boss. I think the Bible places in, in context that there are, are moments and times where a, a wife or a child may appeal to the elders of the church for help in, in a situation with a parent or with a, a husband. Our court system, there are ways of appeal. There are opportunities for appeal. And there, there are, uh, we, we should and can take advantage of those things. That, that may be a part of defending yourself. Now, there's another element, though, that, that goes along with this of, of um, ensuring God's justice. Um, it may include defending yourself. It may include also praying for justice. It may include praying for justice. We read Psalm 35 this morning, didn't we? We're reading through the Psalms. It's a strange psalm. We read Psalms like this. There's a lot of Psalms like this. Do, do, do Psalms like Psalm 35 when we read this morning, does that ever make you wonder about David's spirituality? Not sure David would be real welcome in an Anabaptist church. Psalm 35. Listen to what Psalm verse 7 says. Since thy, they, uh, I'll read verse 7 again. Since they hid their net for me without cause and without cause dug a pit for me, may ruin overtake them by surprise. May the net they hide, hid entangle them. May they fall into the pit to their ruin. Then my soul rejoice in the Lord and delight in his salvation. This is strange, David says. When my enemies fall into a pit, I will rejoice. Praise God, he fell in a hole. This is great. That's very strange. C.S. Lewis never really put this together. He... he he couldn't understand how this worked. These verses, though, they make a lot more sense if you imagine David writing this on the run from Saul, right? They make more sense. Can you ever pray like this, Psalm 35? This is part of praying for justice, and this is how you do it. Psalm 35 is here to teach you how to pray for justice. You are seeking God for justice. You are coming before Him and pouring out your complaint to Him and asking Him to work. Can you ever pray this way? If your bully is a member of your family, you probably shouldn't pray it with grace at the dinner table. That's probably not a good idea. But, but ask God for help and trust yourself to the one who judges justly. Which is actually a, a phrase that Peter applies to the Lord Jesus, doesn't he? We read this this morning, Christina did. 1 Peter 2.23 When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus Christ has such confidence in his Father that he endured all of the shame and all of the abuse and suffering of the cross. The Bible tells us that Jesus went on the cross, went to the cross in obedience to the will of his Father. It's almost unbelievable. It is almost unbelievable that this would be God's plan. This plan to rescue us and redeem us was for his Son to assume human flesh, to become one of us, and to live a normal life, a normal life with all of the attendant temptations and sorrows and sufferings, but without any sin, and then to die for sins, not that he had committed, but that you and I had committed, in your place, bearing God's justice for your disobedience. It's almost an unbelievable plan. You can't, don't think about the Trinity this way, 
But, but, but the Bible, can you imagine someday, one day, long ago, God the Father comes to God the Son and says, Son, I have a plan to rescue. You're going to have to trust me. Do you trust me? I wonder if God's asking you that same question. Do you trust me? Will you trust me? He asked Jesus that question because Jesus would rescue and redeem us. That's not why he asks you that question. He asks people who are already rescued and already redeemed, do you trust me? 1 Peter 3, Peter mentions the possibility that a wife who finds herself in this situation and and entrusts herself to God may be used by by God in her actions and her response to her husband to win him to faith. Your perseverance, your joy, your generosity in the face of bullying may bear similar fruit. I wonder, is God this much of a presence in your life? Does he have this much of a controlling interest? Do you entrust yourself to the one who judges justly? Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and I, we, we already think about the insufficiency of of this little bit of time that we have devoted to this massive subject. Because, Lord, there are people in our congregation for whom this issue looms large. At work or at home or on the bus or in classrooms, online, there are people who are pecking and picking and, and uh, harassing, using vile words and hateful, doing hateful things. Lord, uh, they are your sheep and they're herding sheep. We come before you this morning because you are the great shepherd. And I I pray this morning that you would magnify yourself in their minds and their hearts, that they would be enabled to look to you for justice, that they would entrust themselves to you, the God who judges justly. I pray, Father, that this magnificent view of your greatness in their minds and hearts would enable them to think well about how they respond, how they do defend themselves, and in what circumstances they appeal, and how. Lord, I I pray that you would rescue hurting people in our congregation. I, I pray that you would shepherd and care for and comfort them. I pray that you, by your great power, would remind them of the fact that you are good, you are our Savior, even in the midst of the trouble that they have. Help them to navigate all of the difficult situations and unusual circumstances and the the specific particularities that they're facing. Father, we want you to loom large in our minds as we think about our enemies and those who antagonize us. 
Help us, oh help us, we pray to face these men and women by faith in the great God, our Savior. We pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.